Tuesday morning to you, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon Podcast. Since it is Tuesday, this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode several years ago. Thanks for downloading, and I sure hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on April 29th of 2012, under the headline, Giant Skeleton Find Recalled Old Legend of Pirate Treasure. Here we go. On February 20th, 1931, a former Lincoln County commissioner named Elmer Calkins looked behind his horse team at the plow he was pulling and saw human bones strewn out along the furrow behind it. Calkins was working up a patch of land near the mouth of the Salmon River so that it could be flattened out into a smooth park-like landscape for the summer camping resort he was building there. The new Roosevelt Highway... Highway 101 was mostly built, and car-tripping tourists from the Willamette Valley were starting to make beach trips part of their summer plans. Calkins hoped that a few of them would come and camp at his place so that they could play on the nearby beach, a lovely secluded sandy strand beside Cascade Head in North Lincoln County, known as Three Rocks Beach. The field he was smoothing out was uneven for a reason. It was peppered with shellfish middens, basically miniature landfills used by Native Americans for disposal of clam and mussel shells and fish bones and the odd worn-out whalebone club or stone knife. It was in one of these that, unexpectedly, human bones had turned up. Calkins got down, got a shovel, and dug up the rest of the body. It was, he immediately noticed, enormous. Most accounts say it was about eight feet tall and that the skull was over two-thirds of an inch thick in its beefiest spot with unusually big cheekbones and forehead. A little more digging turned up a second, more normal-sized skeleton, the skull of which had been pierced with an arrow and bashed in with something like a stone axe. Calkins and his neighbors at first thought they'd simply stumbled across a Native American burial. But the more they talked about it, the less sense that made. The Native Americans would no sooner have buried a body in a shellfish midden than we would toss one in a landfill today, unless, of course, it were the body of a deadly enemy. Also, there was an old story still being told along the Salmon River estuary, an old Indian tale. According to the story, a winged canoe had foundered just inside the mouth of the salmon, possibly having mistaken it for the Salettes or the Nehalem in the fog. This would have been a fatal error, since it's sometimes possible to walk across the mouth of the salmon without getting one's shirt wet. The crew, more than twenty men, had rowed ashore with a heavy chest of the type one would fill with pirate loot. This they buried, and then, leaving two of their number behind, set out overland east, never to be heard from again. The two they left behind, according to the legend, were a gigantic black man and a regular-sized white guy. These two didn't last long before they made the natives angry enough to kill them. Now, most of the neighbors thought this story was entirely made up, or perhaps had been borrowed from the legend of the buried treasure on Neakani Mountain, just a couple of dozen miles up the coast. But Calkins thought there might be something in it, because he'd frequently snagged his fishing nets on a wreck a little way inside the mouth of the river. Knowing the legend, he'd been curious enough to investigate it one day and confirmed that there was a wreck there in about 12 feet of water, the ribs sticking up and rotting away. 
Calkins contacted Oregon historian Dr. John Horner of Oregon State University, which was then known as Oregon Agricultural College, and Dr. F. M. Carter, a physician with an established practice among the remaining Native American coastal tribes in the area. Carter confirmed the pedigree of the legend as having come from the tribes and as being very old, and after reassembling the skeletons, he gave his professional opinion that the large one was of African descent, though how he was able to be sure of this given the body's unique and freakish size and shape is not clear. It's certainly possible that, mindful of the legend, he was expecting to see Africa in it from the outset. The presence of gold or buried treasure in any story has an immediate corruptive influence on its truthfulness, and this effect seems to have kicked in on this story very early in the process. According to accounts from the 1950s, Horner took the bones back to OSU and actually wrote a paper on the find. However, the bones later mysteriously disappeared from the university, and there's no sign of the paper having been published. Moreover, Horner died in 1933, so... By the time these accounts were published, he couldn't exactly be asked about it. The newspapers of the 30s don't mention Horner at all, or Carter either, for that matter. In any case, the story touched off a wave of trouble for Elmer Calkins, who found himself having to deal with tourists of the wrong sort. Tourists who, rather than coming with money and expecting to leave a week later with less, come with no money and hope to leave a week later as millionaires. Squatters became a problem. One nervy fellow asked permission to set up a fishing camp and then pitched an enormous tent and started digging for the treasure underneath it. Calkin figured it out when he saw dirt spilling from beneath one of the walls. In the 1970s, Calkin's son, Edward, mounted an expedition to try to retrieve the old pirate ship from the bottom of the salmon, where it had been more or less covered with sand and silt. The younger Calkins claimed he had a special underwater metal detector that only picked up gold and silver and that it told him, as the Oregonian put it, that there was booty in the bilge of the sunken wreck. If anything came of this, the newspapers were silent on it. Today, the site Elmer Calkins was plowing up for his tourist camp is known as Camp Westwind. Westwind is a YWCA camp that holds a special place in the hearts of tens of thousands of former campers, few if any of whom know that it is entirely possible, if not particularly likely, that somewhere on its rustic oceanside grounds there lies a giant box of pirate loot. Now, granted, it's only slightly less likely that the Tooth Fairy lives in a treehouse nearby. Still, it's a fabulous bit of Oregon Coast folklore. Key sources in this story have included works by Ruby L. Holt and The Portland Oregonian. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. More info is at our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house about which more can be learned at pulp-lit.com. Speaking of which, if you enjoy listening to me, you might check out some of my audiobooks. You can find them most easily with a search for my name on audible.com. Most of them are old pulp stuff, H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Rice Burroughs, etc., but at least two of them are offbeat Oregon history type stuff. Check them out if you're so inclined. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. 
Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.